healthcare epiphany. As extracted from my books, Healthcare for All, The Boomers Are Coming in the American Enterprise Party, Volume 2. My story, 175-175-175, from the many to one. In 1987, at a skilled nursing facility, I took on, which was decertified, and called Death Valley by the surveyors, there were 207 beds with plummeting occupancy. It had 175 patients that did not want to be there, 175 families who did not want to come there, and 175 employees who did not want to work there, quite a big undertaking dot within five days of taking over without even an administrator's license. A 93-year-old contracted patient drowned in the whirlpool while a foreign therapist charted behind a privacy screen. The next day I was on TV trying to explain the accident, which the Attorney General called neglect and criminal abuse. My attitude of I am going to fix this mess, and a forgiving family got me through to the next big problem. Actually after that and for the next six months it got worse, 200% turnover, 25% absenteeism, 50% absenteeism on weekends, theft of patients' valuables, air conditioning, that broke down for two weeks. Surveyors were there every day with their humidity and temperature thermometers, just waiting to shut us down. My staff was made up of legal or illegal immigrants, who weren't properly trained nor effective but wanted what I wanted. I had Polish bedmakers, Mexican housekeepers, Filipino LPNs, East Indian night staff, Black American CNAs, white RNs, Hispanic dietary staff, many of whom were probably not legal aliens. Not a team, but a group of workers focused on paychecks and their departments, not on the patients. I found out that I didn't have the quick fix, and probably made things worse, by doing nothing, but reacting to family, patient, staff complaints. Even an ineffective leader sometimes does nothing, and becomes a leader. During a snowstorm that November, only half the staff showed up for work, and for 72 hours the facility ran better without troublemakers and thieves. Since the director of nursing didn't show up and my assistant director of nursing was on the phone wanting direction, I suggested that they organize as teams and focus on priorities, such as feeding, dressing, medications, treatments, etc. When I got there the Adan and lead aid had organized the staff into teams, and were performing as they never had before. Priorities were done first and busy work was shelved. After the snowstorm, it dawned on Methot before the storm, all of the staff only worked half a day, and after, half the staff got more done in a day than they did in a week before. Quite an eye-opener, so much so I decided we were not going back to the old ineffective departmental structure, but were going to stay with the team set up in my absence. To do this required that I know what the root cause of the complacency and apathy in our team. Teams have been a part of my whole life growing up competing for a position being the smallest on the field or floor. So, I decided to become a nurse's aide, a housekeeper, a dietary aide, a maintenance man, a social worker for each shift for a day to learn their problems. After contacting Scabies, and giving them to my wife it finally dawned on me that we had tribes not teams. From that time on we many would work as one for a common goal serve our patients is to serve our soul. The rest is history. In conclusion, this epiphany changed my view of the infrastructure of nursing homes. As teams only focused on the patient's priority problems and organized to implement the care plan interventions, we achieved efficiency and effectiveness never before attained. Productivity was based on outcomes we could get reimbursed for and quality was a byproduct of our control of the processes. By our next quick quality incentive payment and annual survey we were recertified and received a clean survey with five of the six stars of quality awarded exemplary providers, which meant more money for better quality. The byword for this miracle I experienced is taking a staff with no purpose and turning it into a team with a purpose is better utilizing my human capital was enterprise. My realization that our staff was handcuffed to antiquated management awoke with the snowstorm. 
From that day on I implemented Learn to Earn and Skill to Build programs to provide each staff member a career path to their American dream. This was built on the program I learned at Arthur Anderson and Company. Each person was the center of their life's aspirations and goals. All I had to do as their boss was to activate them in an organization of winning, not losing to their job performance. In other words, doing their jobs with excellence and effort as their goal. We all were winners, and in the process the patients received quality of care and improvement of their lives. Out of this grew my pay-for-performance program based on skill to on the bill, and learn to earn career plans that evolved into the so-called Death Valley environment, being replaced by a six-star facility that was the envy of our competition and the joy of our patients and their families. Unfortunately, this could not last forever because the facility, after I fixed it, was sold by the owners who exercised their lease-slash-purchase clause. They then were able to acquire the facility then sell it for a profit of $1.2 million and I was replaced as the administrator by a chain operator who reversed all of the organization and physical changes that we had accomplished to save money and the facility was returned to a warehouse for the elderly. My staff was devastated and thought the new owners were crazy for firing the coach taking them to the Super Bowl. Their words at my departure party where they gave me a trophy for believing in them. It was again not a care house for restored patients so they could return home or to the community but the typical nursing home allowed to operate due to the chain operator's political contributions that allowed them to avoid closure. By knowing when the surveyors were coming, and staffing up to look like they are complying with the minimum standards of care, where it's acceptable to have odor, and understaffing, because they are highly rated by a flawed system of systemic low quality of life for the elderly. Out of this experience comes my educated opinion, another epiphany I had was to pay the performing providers on service excellence. Why not pay fewer efficient staff more for providing quality work, rather than more staff less for whatever they decide to do or not do? At the root cause of the quality problem is the current regulatory minimum standards for skilled nursing facilities that promotes mediocrity by using them to penalize and use civil money fines to incriminate the providers. 37.106.601 Minimum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, General. 37.106.605 Minimum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, Staffing, 37.106.606 Minimum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, Prescription Drugs, 37.106.640 Minimum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, Infirmary, 37.106.645 Minimum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, Developmentally Disabled, 37.106.650 Minimum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, Kidney Treatment, Presently, control is futilely tried by the regulators, and attained through threats, penalties, fear tactics inducing conformity, and less reimbursement. In my opinion, this approach makes care worse. It does not deal with the problem, it deals with symptoms. Poor care is due to lack of economic incentives to provide a quality of life for those who are forced to accept the alternative lifestyle in nursing facilities. And there is not any educational training to assist nursing facility providers in improvement, the government and the provider are at opposite ends. A we against them scenario, using subjective intimidation as opposed to a more democratic environment where both the government and providers are working together to achieve quality care outcomes not provider incomes. It's not the patient's desired home instead staff needs stability not threats, organization, process development and control not more people tools for efficiency not more hours. Models of care designed to address problems and achieve goals. Not guessing what should be done, more involvement with the medical community not a cursory visit by a physician every 30 days skilled, and 90 days non-skilled, with phone orders galore. A proposal for maximum standards that reward excellence, the cliché minimum standards become maximum quality certainly applies in many nursing homes. 
since there are no incentives to do better than minimum, there are no reasons to exceed what you have to providato minimally pass a subjective, arbitrary, and capricious survey process, rather than a survey process based on factual data, survey happens once a year, around contract renewal dates. So it is supposed to be totally a surprise visit. The surveyors are typically former nursing employees who are allowed to subjectively interpret the minimum standards during their visit. Nursing home management is given 10 days to develop a plan of correction for those violations noted by the surveyors and the fire marshal. If the plan is accepted, the state has the option for doing a follow-up survey or accepting the correction plan through a desk review. Nursing home reforms have been promulgated and directed toward additional or revised efficiencies for years. However, very few facilities are held financially accountable for providing quality outcomes, which can be reviewed from statistical and factual data. The root problem here is the system pays for treatment and medications not restoring the elderly so they can return home to assisted living. As a result, the population in nursing homes are relegated to a remaining live-on Medicaid on a maintenance program not restorative with measured outcomes. It's all about guaranteed income to the providers not positive outcomes for patients. What could be the maximum standards and how this would impact quality by using incentives to excel not penalties for violations and deficiencies? 37.106.601 Maximum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, General A facility should be clean, without odors and provide adequate space for patients, families, and visitors, would receive one of six stars of quality. 37.106.605 Maximum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, Staffing a facility would utilize care plans for determining the number of staff based on the skilled interventions, would receive one of six stars of quality. 37.106.606 Maximum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, Pharmaceuticals A facility should institute a drug reduction program involving attending physicians and pharmacies, would receive one of six stars of quality. 37.106.640 Maximum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, Hospitalization a facility should reduce the incidences of rehospitalization by at least 25% each year, receiving one of the six stars of quality. 37.106.645 Maximum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, Dementia and Alzheimer's. A facility that institutes psycho-slash-social programming receives one of the six stars of quality. 37.106.650 Maximum Standards for a Skilled Nursing Care Facility, Activities of Daily Living Optimized. A facility that institutes restorative and retraining programs for all patients receives one of six stars of quality. Quip quality incentive payment, incentive reimbursement would be tied to the maximum standards off care and six stars of quality, while a minimum base rate would apply to the minimum standards of personal care. For example, the minimum base rate would consist of actual cost of room, includes physical plant cost, depreciation, interest on debt, real estate taxes, insurance, utilities, maintenance of plant, common area cleanliness, and infection control, etc. Personal care services provided every patient, includes meals, continent supplies, laundry, housekeeping, safety, and general activities. Personalized activities includes recreational, spiritual, social, and educational activities. Maximum daily rate would consist of the base rate plus six-star incentive add-ons as needed based on assessment. Occupational Rehab and Restorative Care Therapy and Nursing Retraining Programs for ADL Deficits, Upper and Lower Extremity Exercises. Physical Rehab and Restorative Care Therapy and Nursing Retraining for Ambulation Transfer, Bed Mobility, Toileting, Strengthening, Fitness Training. Social Rehab Therapeutic Clubs, Enterprise Activities, Discussion Groups, Card Groups, Gourmet Club, Church Groups, Bible Study.
psychological rehab, groups for wanderers, smokers, cancer survivors, stroke survivors, demented, confused, withdrawn, prone to falls, overweight, underweight. Outcome-based reimbursement must pay for performance proven by documented results, more patients restored, and more discharged back to the community. Annual quality incentive payment based on a survey by state to determine degree of compliance toward quality maximum standards, designed to document the providers doing something right and rewarding them for quality of life. Award first star. Evaluate the effectiveness of the facility's care plan implementation based on the documented assessed problems, programs, and outcomes for each patient's stay. Award second star. Evaluate the effectiveness of the facility's staff management program based on analytics, turnover rate, absenteeism rate, theft rate, fall rate, number of complaints surveys. Award third star. Evaluate the facility's effectiveness in reducing drug dependence and managing drug interactions based on documented occurrences and outcomes. Award fourth star. Evaluate the effectiveness of the facility's management of the attending physician's orders and reducing the number of unnecessary hospitalizations, ER visits, and misdiagnosed testing based on documented occurrences and outcomes. Award fifth star. Evaluate the effectiveness of the facility's management of the psychological needs of the dementia, confused, and Alzheimer's patients. Award 6th Star, evaluate the effectiveness of the facility's skilled nursing restorative and rehab programs, including the therapists. This method has been demonstrated in Illinois. The add-on and QUIP programs were instituted in the state of Illinois in the 1980s by the Department of Public Aid under direction of Connie Charon. I managed nursing facilities during that time, and my staff and I were in pursuit of quality every day based on a variable rate and the annual QUIP survey. My epiphany at Death Valley that became Fox Valley, where 200 patients liked being there, 175 staff that liked working there, and 200 families that would come there was sold and I had to replicate the same methods at my next management contract, Carrington Skilled Nursing Facility. There it took 20 months to allow the owners, Adventist Care Centers to sell it to another warehouser. Both were turned back into warehouses for Medicaid. We then used this crisis management in 140 consulting clients over the next 20 years and eventually at our three All-American Care facilities in Iowa and Arkansas. These were sold after the state of Iowa and Arkansas regulators thwarted our business model for franchising these ideas to what I call the enterprise model of care. Good morning. Uh, this is Jerry and Sherry Rhodes. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning. Uh, it's nice that we're sitting here at the kitchen table again with our recorder and setting up this um, podcast called um, American Healthcare and uh, just kind of express our experience in having um, consulted with for them, with them, and then eventually buying them and trying to run it in a, in a, a crazy... Um, non-productive approach to how we take care of the elderly. That's our expertise. After years of fighting for them, we finally joined them. And so this is that story. It's really the story of Death Valley. And I'm going to have Sharon talk about the facility that I took over, my first uh, facility for uh, being the administrator. It's, uh, it was a hired gun to turn uh, this despicable nursing home around <laughs> so the owners could sell it for a substantial 
profit. They had a, they had a, they had a lease with an option. They wanted to exercise the option, then sell it and get rid of it. So, Sherry, you want to talk about? And and the surveyors called it Death Valley instead of Fox Valley. And then I'll, well, actually, I could introduce introduce it by this set when I took it over, and I'm a CPA. I, I at that point I didn't have my administrator's license, but I did get it. Uh, and I've had it for years in two or three states. But uh, I took it over uh, because my friend, Halal Yampel, a, um, gosh, what is he? He's a, a rabbi. Sorry, forgot the word. He's a rabbi, and he had a group of investor partners. He was a general partner. He had other facilities, which... I was consultant too on Medicare and Medicaid regulations, and so he respected me. His administrator of this facility called Fox Valley, 207 beds in Elgin, Illinois, um, two floors, um, was troubled. And the administrator, Mr. Dooley, um, wasn't actually managing it, it was managing him. Uh, and I won't say any any problem other than the, that he got killed in a car accident driving while intoxicated. And so Hello Yampo needed an administrator. And my accounting fir- firm I had sold off, and I was doing consulting in his other facilities, and I said, I'll go in and turn it around. I had never been the on-site administrator. And so I did that April April of 2087. Um, and so uh, when I got there, um, and it was within five days after getting there and having my director of nursing resign, the assistant director of nursing resign, I brought in my nurse consultant to be the acting director of nursing till we could hire someone. Um, And we obviously had uh, upheaval and odor. And the the facility had been decertified for Medicare and Medicaid funding. And the census was going down because people wanted out of there. The state was forcing us to discharge people. So we were... In a 207-bed facility, we were down to about 175, um, they, I call them patients. They were I was supposed to call them residents, but we weren't renting them, renting them rooms. We were there to get them better was my philosophy. And so for the next few months, and then I'm going to let Sherry talk, um, I don't know what the hell to do. Within five days, we had um, a therapist come up to my office and say, oh, my God, we've had a drowning in the whirlpool. And I said, oh, my gosh, who, what? And I went down, and for sure, this old older gentleman, 93 years old, was underwater. And the fire department was there because she at least had, had the sense to call 911 and he was expired. Um, the whole scene looked like you'd call that drowning, and 
in a whirlpool. He had been in a sling, a Hoyer lift, and lower uh, the therapist would at the tub side. And you're never supposed to leave the tub side with someone in water or going into water. And she was lowering him down and treating contracted legs and arms. In other words, he, he, he couldn't move his legs or arms. He was all hunched over. And she said, oh, oh uh, I walked away to behind this um, curtain to do my charting. I couldn't have been gone more than 10 seconds or 20 or a minute or two or whatever and came back and he was underwater. So almost immediately, public health was out there. Um, and public health has the, the Gestapo-type authority to come in and close you down the very minute that this, that this happens. And I uh, was saying, that my, I'm here to fix Fox Valley, which they had referred to as Death Valley because it was always in trouble. It was always getting write-ups, visits by the, the uh, survey unit. Um, so they knew they knew pretty pretty much what Fox Valley was about or not about not doing and um i had to hire a new administ a new director of nursing to replace my nurse consultant she wasn't going to be there full time which i did and uh so over the next 6 months i really didn't turn it around Matter of fact, I just, from day to day, I wanted to see one positive thing happening. And I thought if those accumulated enough, then it would, you know, it would be better. And the, the staff was, according to my inside information, were stealing um, linens. Uh, I had probably the United Nations in, in terms of... Um, I'm going to call them illegal immigrants. I had no idea. But anyway, uh, they had teamed up in, t in their own teams. Like we had uh, bed makers that were pretty much Polish. Uh, the kitchen were pretty much Hispanic. The nurses' aides were pretty much black. The, the nurses on night shift were pretty much Eastern Indians. Uh, Filipinos from the state hospital would come in as, as a LPNs to uh, work another shift. And so uh, we weren't really focused on um, what my philosophy was, is get, the, get, the, get them in, get them better, and get them back home. We have to be able to restore them. We can't just warehouse them. And that's what I was in charge of, was a warehouse, no doubt. So, like I said, I, I didn't make it any better. I don't know, I, with, with not really having a plan at that point because it was such crisis management that um, until November, and it was November 16th, I can remember that like it was day yesterday, uh, we had a 16-inch snowfall, and I was living about a half an hour to 45 minutes away at that point. I hadn't moved to Elgin. I never did move to Elgin, but it was commuting, and uh, I couldn't get out of my driveway. Matter of fact, I didn't get on my driveway for three days, and I had to almost do shovel my way out to get out. And at the facility, uh, I talked to the assistant director of nursing, Lynn Webster, 
she was going to become my director of nursing because the one that I had hired didn't show up. She didn't show up for three days and then wondered how we, how we were able to handle it. And when Lynn called me, she says, what do we do? We'll have only half the staff. What are we going to do? We've got 175 lives here, and we've got to take care of them, and we can't, no one can get in or out. I said, well, the only thing I can think of is what I learned at Arthur Anderson is we have to focus on the priorities. And we have to have people that are focusing on not on all priorities, but their own priority for that group of patients. It's almost like we're breaking down the work, so each person has their assigned responsibilities for a particular function, and that's where I came up with functional management later, is that you don't manage by uh, telling everyone we have to give quality of care and then send them out to do it. No, there has to be focus on the patients with problems. You do have to triage. You do have to determine the people that are most at risk and focus most of your staff resources on that. So just instinctively that I'd learned at Arthur Anderson as a consultant to other companies uh, and and hospitals, uh, when I got there, it was almost 72 hours later before I could even get out and get there. I walked in. And I could tell there was a difference. It, it still had odor. My wife, who we had offices there for a while, uh, couldn't stand to be there because of the odor. And uh, the odor was still there, but th- there was something different because everyone was busy. Everybody was busy with the patients, not somewhere else, or I couldn't find them, or I didn't know what they were doing. And I, And as a result... You know, it was, what is the word, epiphany for me to say, I think we're not going to go back to departmental management. Departments being silos, people only doing what they are told or guessing what they should do or doing little in their department. We're not going to have departments. We're going to have teams. That's the way I've learned in my short time that is the most effective way to manage people, manage subjectives under certain objectives, which would mean i got to take my share of the responsibility and improve this person's outcome. Because in healthcare, it's only talking about income. They're never talking about prevention or outcomes because there hasn't been a definitive way to manage uh, using that approach. And so this was the first day that I had discovered the effectiveness of that um, crisis management. And I didn't just make it up. I had learned it. And lo and behold, for the next year to year and a half, um, we were pursuing the six-star system that the, the state had decided they were going to use to try to get improvement in the quality of care. And when I went to make the, the, the speech to the staff after after we'd been there for a little while and things were improving to the extent I couldn't believe it, and as we got patients clean and, and gave them showers more often than maybe once a week, we were giving them showers on the basis of what their 
needs were, not on what somebody said the regulators told us we had to do. We had to keep them clean. We got rid of cloth diapers. We cannot have uh, these dirty diapers stacking up and and creating odors. The minute we got rid of this, the cloth diapers and the uh, everybody got a shower, maybe not once a day because staffing is a problem, we got them clean. And we got the diapers out of there, and all of a sudden the place didn't smell anymore. And... So then we cleaned the, the ceiling tile. They, they hadn't been cleaned in 14 years, never been cleaned. I redid the floors. Uh, the place sparkled. Um, and we started to get some stars when the surveyors came back because they'd, they'd find us. They were going to come in and check on me to make sure I could run this therapy department that had drowned the patient when, in effect, the medical corridor didn't believe it was drowning because there were no water in the lungs. Um, but that's what the final result was, is drowning, and so we got the fine, and I had to go down to the therapy room every day to check to make sure that the therapist was following the rules to the extent that it got to be so redundant. And, and, I, and I had fired the therapy company because I felt that the therapist was was uh, not only incompetent, but should not have ever left the site of the patient. And then I had a new therapy company. I wanted my own therapist in there, which is what I finally got. But, but uh, over this period of time, I've been saying to Sherry, and she's going to talk about it, that things are changing. And she says, well, you, you used to come home smelling like the place. I said, yeah, you could go there. And you could get used to the smell and then come home, and I would smell that way. And then we had scabies during this period of time, and we had to go through and, and wash all the all clothing, all linens, twice. It was re-regulation. Re but I was supposed to have a dermatologist come in and check each patient. I said, we don't have the time to do that. We just went ahead and cleaned the entire... Um, laundry two times. The patients were then bathed in this, this special solution, and I had to take the solution home because I took, I took, I had a, I had one of the AIDS, what they call those things? Scabies. No, the things the AIDS wore. They're, uh, anyway, I had I had I had one, worn one of those because I was out on the floor. And trying to make sure that that we got rid of the scabies, which we did in two days, and but I had to also take that solution home, and my wife and I had to bathe in it just to, as a prevent a per, per, prevention of uh, a precaution, yes. yeah, that we that I didn't bring them home, and so um, the uh, Medicare program, which was my specialty, we started. Uh, implementing a special unit for Medicare. So my other concept of managing this was to to section off the facility in terms of the patient's needs. And, of course, the heaviest needs were the ones that were coming to the hospital from uh, having had medical problems and going into our what I then called our skilled unit. And the skilled unit, if you handle the cost accounting correctly, will 
increase your rates because you're taking on more costs to take care of post-hospital patients. So I was implementing that. Our Medicare rate came up from from $60 a day to $150 a day, and we were able to get Medicare patients in from other hospitals because no one wanted to admit heavy care patients. So I was filling the facility up with Medicare, and they were paying me more, and our revenue was going up. The problem was is that the intermediary, which was Aetna, was denying claims. So in other words, they were holding up our payment because we weren't documenting the severity of the and the medical necessity for these Medicare patients. So I put in my charting system, which I had been working on in my accounting firm and, and computerizing, to be able to, on each patient, um, get the right diagnosis, yes, but that we had problem listings, listings by diagnosis, and then we assigned the interventions for specific problems to specific specialized staff who would then work on that particular problem for for a caseload. So these were all my concepts in implementing what I call case management. A case manager was the person that had, was in charge of the Medicare unit and another case manager in charge of the Medicaid unit and another one in charge of the private pay unit and another one the, in charge of the... Um, Medicaid unit, or I guess they said Medicaid unit. But anyway, it was all focused on the patients and what their problems were. And and we had care plans that the end result was supposed to reduce them to their lowest problem level and discharge as many as we could back to the community, either home or assisted living. And the state was loving this. So we went from one, no stars in 18 months to six stars. And with that came incentive bonuses from Medicaid or from public health. If you if you had a star, you got more money per patient day. And so we were getting, by the end of 18 months, uh, the six stars were generating $600,000 in additional revenue, which meant I, had, I didn't invest it in staff. I invested in, in upgrading everything, uh, the food, the environment, the quality of the staff, replacing staff if they weren't getting it. I put in a career ladder which said you need a career concept. You need a, I need a, you to learn to earn and I need a skill to build. And together we will get the six stars. We will be the best. And over a period of 18 months before Sherry came back, uh, things had changed. Yeah, then our daughter was in to visit, and he kept bragging about this place. And I had not been there for a long time. I'd taken the job someplace else. and So anyway, I warned Christy. I said, you know, Dad says it doesn't smell, but he's just used to it. So, And just don't touch anybody or anything, you know, because she had some children, and, and I didn't want to bring anything home to them. And we walked in. Yeah, it's kind of emotional. (laughs) Yeah, she's bringing our our first grandson in with my daughter. It was, I could not believe. Yeah, she'd had to leave because we we had an office in the basement temporarily. And and so this was kind of a shock. 
It's unbelievable. No odor. And my daughter couldn't believe it. Our daughter couldn't believe it. She said, Mom, it doesn't stink at all. And this is so nice. And geez, I was shocked. Because Jerry kept saying it had changed and I need to come see it. But I just figured he was used to it. So, but it really had changed. It was amazing. Yeah, from that experience, I, I've written in my books about Fox or Death Valley be, uh, becoming again Fox Valley, and that my rabbi friend, who was a general partner, they were able to exercise the lease and sell it. But then I became his consultant for all his facilities. I was in this Fox Valley. It was Moon Lake. It was one that's in Arkansas, one in Highland Park where we implemented these, not philosophy or theory, but crisis management that I learned from Arthur Anderson and my work with hospitals. And so from that, I uh, went to another facility after they sold it. It was called Carrington. It was owned by another Jewish company. No, it was the Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists that owned it. Uh, the the man that hired me uh, had been with Beverly Enterprises, and they knew of me in my consulting work after Box Valley, and uh, so he hired me as as the um, management company to go in, and it was another two hundred six bed facility in um, in in uh, the suburbs. Uh, what suburb was that? Uh, some of this stuff has been years ago. Um, but my my uh, request and part of the management contract that I was able to run this the way I had been running Fox Valley when I left. And he agreed to that. He, The Adventists had bought 50 nursing homes. I think most of them from Beverly Enterprises that went... Um, Ray Tutwiler was the president of uh, the Adventist Group nursing home chain. And he's the one that hired me to go in and turn around Carrington because it was in the same shape as Fox Valley. It was 206 beds instead of 207. It was on three floors, not two. And my concept, I was managing at Fox Valley two separate companies. We segmented off the two floors as being separate, focus in on the crisis management again for uh, results, not uh, confusion. And so there, at Carrington and I had three floors, so we had three different, uh, I call them small businesses. And the Medicare was on the first floor. I always wanted my Medicare on the first floor because that's where the, the um, ambulances have to come in and with the gurneys and getting them into their, into their rooms. Um, and then the next floor was for um, confused patients. I did not want to have a locked unit. I didn't believe in having an Alzheimer's unit where they lock people in because you assume they have Alzheimer's and you can't prove if it's severe uh, dementia or moderate or whatever. And we needed to have them closer to the, the crisis management on the first floor, which was more based on 
discharges from the hospital for chronic diseases. And then the top floor was for the more functional. We didn't have to get to them as quickly. We didn't have to staff as intensely. There, uh, the first floor, the staffing ratio was a lot higher than it was for the third floor. And for the second floor, it was on the basis of more psychosocial um, services, not medical services. So our care plans were different. I had a case manager for each floor, um, and I had specialized staff working each each floor. And they had specific functions, and they had specific colored uniforms for that, their specialty, and their assignments were on a 20 a, a uh, eight-hour shift, three time, three shifts a day. Um, and we had a night, a, a night administrator. So we had all the decision-making positions focused on the patient. Uh, we were implementing the six-star system, which, again, staff hadn't really gotten a star. They didn't know what a star was. A lot of them left um, when we started cutting, cutting the... Uh, staffing back to what uh, we could efficiently uh, direct. and But because the census was down, they had lost their certification also for Medicare and Medicaid. I was to get that back. I set up a Medicare unit on the first floor, same as Fox Valley. Uh, we ended up having a 75-bed skilled Medicare unit that was admitting patients from all over the city uh, and suburbs of Chicago because I was the only one that would take tough cases and knew how to get Medicare to pay for it by using my documentation system. So through all this, I'm thinking, well, hmm, am I discovering something here? Am I inventing something? Or is this just logical common sense? Which when I've written my book subsequent to that, I attribute it to being just uh, systematic, focused, logical, common sense, where you're focusing in on problem solving, not issues between me and the surveyors. The surveyors in Illinois at that point loved me because I was there to fix it. But I, they, that facility was running on my rules. Not We're not changing the diapers on just the way they tell us how to do it. This was all on the basis of, of focusing in on restoring people to their highest level of functioning and discharging them. And the state was trying to force a discharge program because they didn't want just warehousing to pay for warehousing of the elderly on Medicaid because it was destroying their, actually their budget was gone anyway. Uh, they didn't pay their bills in, in on nursing homes for, for as, six months to a year. And, it was, and when I first got involved with Fox Valley, the banks wouldn't allow borrowing against... Uh, Medicaid bills because you never knew if you're going to collect it from the state. But the state finally uh, assured the banks that they would be paid first, even though the government was didn't have a budget, uh, and they were basically bankrupt anyway. So uh, uh, we organized it, uh, Carrington, the same way. Sherry came there uh, after I'd been there for a while, but she kind of, she knew what I was doing. It was just the fact that uh, we went there one Christmas Eve as we were on the way to uh, my daughter's home, which was down by Peoria. And I said, I promised the patients I would come 
because they're having a Christmas party. It was Christmas. It was a Christmas Eve. And uh, we walked in. And by that time, we had 200 patients. We didn't have 170. And they were coming and going. Our average length of stay in our Medicare unit, we got it down to less than 20 days because after the 20th day, then the patients have to pay a copay, and it gets to the point where they're spending their own money for being warehoused in a nursing home. So our goal was to get them, get them in, get them better and out back home within 20 days. If we did, Medicare paid the whole bill. And so with that strategy, I had the most referrals to our Medicare unit of anyone in the Chicago area. And we were we there, again, it took about two years to get the 18 months of the two years to get the six stars of of what they call QUIP, Quality Incentive Payment. But, uh, Sherry, you could kind of comment on our visit that one uh, Christmas Eve when I said we have to stop here because I promised them I would be there. Yeah, and, and he kept telling me that it didn't smell, and, you know, he was painting this rosy picture. And I just, yeah, yeah, okay. And so we had to go by that night, and I could not believe the difference when I walked in and there was no odor. Yes, see, one of the things she was surprised at is I knew, I knew all of their names. One of the things that I've always had a problem with is re- remembering names. At Fox Valley, I had, as one of my challenges is to remember at least the first names of eventually it was 200 patients uh, their family member uh, my staff and people would come in and they couldn't believe that I could remember the names of not only the, the patients but their names and also the and it was first names I, I couldn't have told you their last name some of them I could if they got there enough but I, I found out that I could, and so I did that at Carrington and every facility that I've been involved with since then, and we 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 then owned three of our own, became one of the biggest selling points for coming to this facility because I give them a tour, and I knew everyone. And I was making, I was out in the facility most of the time when I first started doing it until I got it organized where my case managers could handle the point where I didn't have to be there whipping people into shape. They were keeping people in shape. So that was one of the benefits of I have a good memory. So I I was able that night (laughs) to go around to every table and say hello by first name at least and wish them Merry Christmas. Yeah, that was a really big shock to me because... I had never been in a nursing home where there wasn't a terrible odor and, and uh, you know, just Jerry kept saying, he talked to me about people and he always knew their names and everything. And uh, gosh, we walked in that night. I could not believe it. It was just beautiful and everybody was dressed up and sitting at the tables. and Yeah, we, we uh, had the the patients that were most functional, we had a, a weekly meeting. Uh, we ha- had a, something we called that committee, quality of, quality of care group uh, on Friday. 
and they were bringing to me the problems that they observed, and they said, yeah, that it's just Mr. Rhodes's spy spying on us. Well, no, it was just the patients needed a way to communicate to me what was going on and what what we needed to fix. And so that became a, 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 something that I learned was very effective is to, to give the patients a voice through patient leaders. I had the more functional ones uh, actually helping me uh, solve problems. That's what it was all about. We didn't have a stand-up every morning where we all came together and I told everybody what they had to do. They knew what to do. They had the care plans. They had their their functions and their assignments, and and they knew that our goal was the patients being restored. So we implemented psychosocial restorative programs that no one else in the state was doing, and we got extra money for it. So at Carrington, I increased the annual revenue somewhat around a million dollars a year for the two and a half years I was there. And it was all on the increased Medicare um, uh, billings, though they were denying and denying and denying. Our cash flow was hurting. And the home office, because I was one of 50 uh, and considered to be the top administrator in the in that group, um, they invited me to talk one one um, meeting for all of the facilities and and their administration, and uh, so I was prepared to tell them about the increases in revenue due to the psychosocial and restorative programs, which was the most effective because it's not therapy, it's not physical therapy. Um, occupational therapy is really a misnomer. It's is getting them so they can function to the point they can go home and do their daily living. Um, but unfortunately, my hour dwindled down to 15 or 20 minutes because they spent the rest of the time talking about the cost of milk. So <laughs> I, I, at that point, thought, uh, you know, I'll do this and I'll finish this project, but I'm not going to continue to be... Um, um, just fixing problems for someone else, then improving their income and bottom line, and and then selling it because they that happened again. They sold it. Adventist sold eventually sold all their facilities, and that was the first one because it was the best, and sold it to another Jewish interest, and uh, it went back the way it was, and so did Fox Valley. They all have the attitude that they can't afford. Um, long-term care. You, you can't afford your facility because it's t- too much Medicaid. Not enough private pay. Well, you know, the private pay, their their money is wasted on, you know, not getting better. So this whole long-term care nursing home business is all based upon warehousing people till you go on Medicaid and there you have to spend all your assets because they won't let you hide them or give them away. So it's run by the government, and the government, as it does with most things, uh, including the post office and and healthcare itself, uh, is isn't working. And so I have written nine different books on how to do that, why to do it, and who would do it. The same approach I've got on uh, a third party, and a good part of the third party is all founded on the, my experiences and successes and 
in the nursing home business. And so now, see how much time I've got left here. I'm okay. I need to talk about how the idea of franchising long-term care, nursing homes, using this, using a franchise method rather than the giant conglomerate chains. Everything's run from a home office on a chain. Beverly Enterprises, they had 1,200 nursing homes, and they were despicable. They finally threw them out of states completely. They'd have 34 uh, nursing homes in Kansas. they throw them out, wouldn't let them be owners. They had to sell them off, and eventually they completely sold them all off because the, everything was run on the basis of money allowed to be spent by home office. You had to have a budget, and it was all about money. And in my situation with a franchise, it's all about the patients. What's the difference? Well, the local, uh, the administrator is also an owner of the operating company, as it is with any franchise. And they would, we would own the real estate. Uh, like all these rural facilities, they're eventually going to fall down. They're all being gobbled up by by investors that want the real estate. They aren't that concerned about housing the elderly or, 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 or restoring them. Uh, you know, they don't want restorative is. So I was going to go around and start acquiring in Iowa. There were 20 on, in this chain, acquire the chain, and turn each one into a franchise, which would be run by someone locally that would pay a franchise fee to use... All American Cares properties, and so it'd be like McDonald's or like um, the coffee company. What is it? Starbucks. <laughs> um, and uh, we would focus on restoring people, and we would save the rural facilities from being not upgraded. So we bought three. We bought one and. Muscatine, Iowa. We bought another one in Washington, Iowa. is about 40 miles away. And uh, we took over one in Little Rock, Arkansas, because it was a consulting client and it was going to be closed. Uh, it was larger. It was 150-some, 157 beds. And the, the goal was, which is 2009, we got funding from Small Business Administration on the first one. And, uh, you know, we didn't have adequate funding. So the, the, pri the private investor that helped me with the down payment then had to loan me enough money for the first payroll, which we eventually paid off. But I was, I had to implement the Medicare program. But by this time, Medicare was denying everything. They were making it very difficult to try to ta utilize the, the person's Medicare benefit as it's written into law. They were violating the law because they didn't want to pay past the 20th day. And they wanted to force you to, to put them on private pay. But in private pay, they, were, they didn't have enough money. I mean, the rates for private pay in Mescatine, the first one, Medicaid was paying $102 a day. Medicare, I think we finally got it up over to $150, $200 a day. The Medicare program there didn't exist and we had very few private patients. And the, and the census was, I don't know, we had 20 or 30 empty beds. 
So I was taking on another big challenge, is how do you pull this off without the proper capital infusion? Well, fortunately, uh, I was able to get a banker that would back me in Muscatine. So we were funding through the bank and through uh, my private investor's mother. We got through the first two or three years. Uh, we First of all, we got a new roof. We painted the ugly red building white. People said, oh, why are you painting it white? Well, because white is clean. It looks way better than red brick. And uh, so we ca- called them the White House. After my mother-in-law's name, her name was Dortha Corny White. She unfortunately was a victim of a nursing home. Uh, and so this was kind of in her honor. So we called it the D.C. Her name was Dortha Corny White, Corny White. So it was the D.C. White House. You could take that as the D.C. White House. It was kind of a play on words. And we had the American flag out front, which the first one was had, was from the White House, given to us by a, a patient. And so that was our first project. We got it cleaned up. We got more money flowing in. Our census was going up, and the surveyors were all over us. It wasn't the same as I had experienced in Illinois, where I, they were happy to see me. They were, The surveyors said, yeah, this is good. Well, we got to Iowa, and um, what was the governor's name? Branstead, which we later called Braindead, had a Gestapo that was just beating the hell out of nursing homes, thinking that that's the way to make them better. That's never the way to make it better. Of course, they were beating me over the head because they said we owned a bunch of them in Illinois and they weren't going to take that from from you foreigners. Well, we were born in Iowa. <laughs> we were there to fix it. We weren't there to... Yeah, we needed to make money. We needed to have a profit. And then another one came for sale 40 miles away. And so our bank backed us. We bought it. And it was a mess. And to make a long story short, over three years, we turn these facilities into ugly, stinking messes into, well, they look great, the staffing was good, the results were great, we were getting 57% of the patients we admitted back home, we utilized all our Medicare we could, we had to appeal tons of claims, we had to jump through the government hoop just to survive. And it got to the point where they were telling us and my staff how to how to change a diaper, all these ridiculous regulations that have no relationship to problem solving and and uh, what I would call quality of life as well as quality of care. And we were doing both, and it didn't matter. They were out to get me because of what I'd said in my books is I felt the regulatory system was a waste of money. You know, the way to do this is to privatize these not having been owned by chains that have 1,200 of them running them from New Jersey, an office in New Jersey or California. So I had stated my opinion in books, and they, they were after me. And uh, so what, what did they do? They started fining us for just ridiculous things. And when they get to a, a J violation, that means they can take away your funding from Medicare and Medicaid and put you on hold. So they were doing that to us. 
we had a system my son put in because he was the IT expert with uh, with our automated care planning system and focusing. He had put video cameras at in each hall to make sure that the staff was, you know, focusing on, on the care, but also if there were things happening, accidents or things that they were finding us for, to be sure that we had the proper documentation. Well, in Washington, we hadn't been there, but that would have been the first first survey. They they somehow got their hands on the video and then alleged that we didn't, our staff didn't get to a patient that was lying on the floor for 48 minutes. Well, that patient was crazy in our Alzheimer's unit, which I eventually did away with the Alzheimer's unit. And she was walking around on the video, looking and talking at the ceiling and backed up, stumbled and fell and hit, hit the back of her head on the, not directly, but on the side. And then she just kind of curled up and went to sleep. Well, the director of nursing had told the staff, do not approach her unless there's two of you. And on that particular day, they were having a Christmas party at the other end of the hall. That's why there was no one down there. But then we did have the video showing a staff person going down there, but she had to wait until there were two, and then they came back with two people. And then the state claimed that 48 minutes was the reason to find us <coughs> treble damages <coughs> and uh, put us on probation for Medicare and Medicaid money. So that was the beginning of the end. <coughs> I'm starting to cough. Uh, the end result was as we, we sold them. We got out. I've got it documented in the books. And then Sherry, you, you, Sherry was the administrator at, at uh, her first experience, and she was the administrator at uh, Washington. Washington. And she and I were the administrators in Little Rock, Arkansas. And that was primarily a, a, a black facility that we turned around that people said we couldn't. And then the one in Muscatine, I was the administrator eventually there. So we were hands-on. That's why the whole concept of franchising. But uh, yeah, Sherry might want to comment about her experiences as a hands-on administrator. Well, I, first of all, I want to, my favorite response is when we... Um, well, I don't blame her for being emotional because I when I... Go to make my speech of orientation when we take over a facility, I get a little choked up. But I think that's the fact that we were forced out of this by the regulatory system. That's what's bothering her. That's what bothers me when I write my books and say something's got to change. Government's fine if it stays within its realm. But when it starts overstepping it, and that I would call that maybe zeitgeist socialism. We don't have that in America. We have American socialism, which are the workers, and we have the American capitalism, which are the investors. And they work together every day in, in free market enterprise. So don't tell me that, that this country is going to be taken over by socialists. Uh, they may try, but what we have going for us is we're doing the right thing. Um, yeah, okay. our our patients were 
they really, they loved us and they knew that we loved them and, and uh, they were really upset when we left. They said it will never be the same. And, uh, they were purchased by a group out of New Jersey, a chain, and they were turned back into what they were before. Yeah. And the survey was going to, they were going to find this for a, a similar situation in our Alzheimer's unit, so I'd close the Alzheimer's unit. I want those people to be, have some socialization. So locking them in a unit is like locking them into a mental institution. There's just too many things wrong about not just long-term care, but health care in general, which you can probably get in my books. So that's our podcast for today. Sherry was apprehensive because she does tend to get um, emotional about the end result because we had aspirations of uh, really doing something great in this great country of America.